from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Grace Reed. Grace is a mediator and author of the book Negotiating Shadows. Grace grew up in foster homes and eventually became an alcoholic. She describes her bottoming out and her road to recovery and spiritual awakening. Grace shares excerpts from her book and insights for helping others with addictions. I started the interview by asking Grace where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there? <laughs> well, I was born in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, but I grew up in parts of Ohio, southern Ohio and mid-north Ohio. Southern Ohio was uh, Worcester, where my parents were at the time. That was the first childhood encounter and then uh, in foster home in Worcester, and then also in uh, Dayton, Ohio, that area, and Springfield, Ohio. The Buckeye Stick was my um, childhood experience. As far as what it was like, horrible. Mm. (laughs) I wrote a book, Negotiating Shadows, that uh, actually talks about my childhood and what that was like and what Mm. that was like in context to history of all all many, many, many other children that were growing up in poverty and that kind of lifestyle. I did do some research on your website. Did you grow up under the Native American tradition? No, not in the beginning. I did not. My On my mother's side, my mother's side is Dutch, and I was more exposed to her people when in the Ohio area. That was down in uh, Worcester, Ohio, which actually, come to think of it, that's northern Ohio. Then when we went further south in Ohio to Springfield, that was where my father's people were. And my grandmother was part and or probably mostly full-blooded Salagi or what the this country calls Cherokee, but it's actually pronounced Salagi. So I have that gene in me, but on the other hand, I was not necessarily exposed to it because, in fact, it was not okay for my grandmother to be a native. She was Christianized and uh, encouraged not to uh, do anything native because it was considered pagan. So they were all pretty much low-key. In fact, my father, he was swarthy, you know, kind of brown, had a big nose and dark hair, and he called himself a Jew because he wanted to go to the bars and drink. He was an alcoholic and and they didn't allow Native American people to drink in the bars, so he called himself a Jew, and I thought I was Jewish <laughs> for a while. What sort of religious background did you were you raised in? Absolutely none. I hated religion. I was not raised in any of it, but the people that I was exposed to, my foster home people, a distant, distant aunt in Worcester where I got an incredible amount of abuse, they went to church, they drug us kids along because there weren't any babysitters, I guess. And we sat in these hard church pews. Mm. It, it was it was abhorrent to me. I hated it. 
even when I was a little kid. Then we would go home, and they would be very abusive. I didn't want anything to do with these people, mm-hmm. even though they were going entering church buildings anyway. Nobody sat down and said, uh, read stories or anything that you know you would normally expose a child to if you were trying to get them to be part of a of a religion. And I remember once my mother, who came and went and came and went, did try to get us into some sort of children's Bible classes, or, you know, they would go to the basement and crayon pictures and stuff. And I loved that part because I was with my peers, and those people were warm and fuzzy, and the stories were fascinating. But no, not really, for no training of any kind, just exposure, and not the best exposure. And the same with the second foster home. Although that foster parent, who was an auntie of my father's, Aunt Mary, she was fanatic, incredibly fanatic. And she kept hopping around from one church to the other. So it was all sorts of Nazarene, and then it was the second Nazarenes and the first Nazarenes. And then it was, I I was totally confused. I, I didn't want any part of any of it. Every now and again, my grandmother, who was the native, would build a fire by her cabin. They lived on a farm. So she had a cabin on the farm. And she would build this big bonfire and sit around and she would tell stories. And that was what I was attracted to. And of course, that was more the native philosophy or religion, if you will. At what age were you able to escape the abuse? I graduated at 16 from Green and High School. And I had an aunt that lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I convinced her that I needed to go down there with her. Mm-hmm. And she did bring me down there with her. So she paid the ticket and everything. And so I got away from all of that by the time I was 16. But from the time I was four years old till 16, I had nothing but pretty bad treatment as a child, which is, again, embodied in my book, Negotiating right. Shadows. And we'll we'll get into your book later in the interview. So did you have any siblings? Two brothers. Were you all separated when you guys went to foster home? No, they kept us together, and that was the one really good thing that happened. Uh, They kept us together. Uh, We wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't have made it without them because I felt like I had at least a purpose to stay alive, which was taking care of them and watching over them, especially my smaller brother and then they probably wouldn't have made it without me either so yeah they kept us together at least the two siblings were younger than you yeah and did they go to florida with you no no Mm. that was that was just me graduating from high school and getting the heck out of dodge right right yeah i understand (laughs) in ohio (laughs) nobody wants to live in Enon, ohio i doubt if there's anybody living there now what went on with your life when you got to florida you know, it was interesting. It was a, it was this big adventure, and and the flights down, and the whole thing. And I mean, gosh, it was just amazing. And I got down there, and my aunt Grace needed uh, somebody to be a maid for her house. So I I found myself in a really yet another bad situation. Mm-hmm. So she kind of had hidden uh, motives, hidden agendas, and she did not live anywhere near the beach. So it was. It was just good old typical flat land, kind of an upper middle class neighborhood with a lot of old people. And there I was, this really young woman, just being a maid for my 
auntie and my uncle while they went off to work. And I, it was lonely. I was alone down there, uh, you know, in the, at least in the beginning. And then things changed? Oh, boy, did they ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what happened? Well, I would roam around the neighborhood on a regular basis, and I finally found kind of this main drag, which, by the way, did take you to the beach. We, I don't know, we must have been five miles from the beach or something. So the main drag, people in, in pickup trucks with, with boogie boards and, and truckloads of young people would be coming and going and coming and going, and carloads of people coming and going, and they were young, and, and uh, I literally would stand there and flag them down. <laughs> and I got a ride to the beach with these young people because young people pick young people up in those days, you know, after all, we'll talk in the early the 60s, you know. So every the young people bunched up anyway. And so when I hit the beach, my whole life changed, needless to say. I ran away from home, in other words. Never came back. Well, no, no, I, I had to come and go from that place. Yeah, and then I eventually I just lived on the beach with, you know, bunched up with all my buddies, and mm-hmm. and we and we just partied and drank and drugged and partied. And I mean, my whole rock and roll party life started right then. Got the tiniest bikini I could find, and I had the body to, to match it. Of course, I was a drop dead gorgeous young woman. But what was so interesting, being from the north, I didn't know I was that way. I really didn't. I just knew that I copied everybody else that was doing whatever they were doing. So I got a bikini on, walked up and down the beach, and got into enormous amounts of trouble. And how long did that go for? You know, my aunt and my uncle and my auntie, of course, they didn't like it, but they weren't my parents. And, of course, they didn't, I, knew, I did not have parents, so it's not like I was supervised and they were going to send me back to the other place anyway. But they got pretty concerned, obviously, and my uncle was keeping an eye on me. I didn't know that, but he was keeping an eye on me. And pretty soon they they came and they said, they said, all righty, here's the deal. You're either going back to good old cold Ohio or you're going to shape up a little bit. You need to get a job. So they pulled me off the beach and I had to go get a job at this cafeteria. And uh, it was segregated, and I I learned an enormous amount. That's where my uh, activism against racism started. And uh, everything was segregated segregated in the South at that time. And there were black black women's bathrooms, black men's bathrooms, white women's bathrooms, etc. Coming from the North, it was just confusing and amazing and scary. All the white girls were um, the frontline servers in this cafeteria. It was mostly old people that would come and go. And all the black people were the ones that were cooking the food and cleaning up the dishes and whatnot, but they were never allowed to come to the front. We would hand all of our dishes. They would hand the food through little holes, you know, through the walls, and uh, we would hand the dishes and stuff back. There wasn't It wasn't even like an exposed wall where you could even see them. They were well hidden back there. So that's the attitude. Yeah. And I hated it. I immediately took great issue with that. And when I came to work, I would always go to the back and come through the black, the black area, right. which actually got them in trouble. And I made friends with this one black girl, she was so shy, and they were frightened to death to have me back there. 
because I did not realize that I was getting them in trouble. And an older man came up and very respectfully said, we would prefer you wouldn't do this. They were frightened to death because they would get fired. And I think they could get into even more trouble. But I was very naive and I didn't know. But that was a form of my protesting. And I got in trouble eventually over it too in that I went into the black women's bathroom because the white women's bathroom was full. So I said, well, i got to go to the bathroom. So I went into the black women's bathroom and I got fired. And I became very aware of the racism that was present at that time, and I hated it. And I became an activist, a protester against all that. I was very grateful for that experience. So what happened after you left the the job? (laughs) I'm back to the beach. I I was trying to please my auntie and, you know, my uncle. And and they tried very hard to keep me out of trouble, but I was a very naive 16, 17-year-old kid. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on, you know, on the beach. And there was a naivety and an innocence those days that does not exist today. So it it wasn't the same situation as it is today. Uh, But eventually I did become sexually active and I got pregnant, and that changed the whole thing. And, of course, I ended up going back to Ohio, pregnant and in Ohio again. And that was a stigma, an unbelievable amount of shame and blame and stigma and judgment. But that's the way it was. That was my life at that time. So you were a single mom then for a while. Yeah, yeah, I was a single mom for quite some time. And then I had to work. I ended up working two jobs, darn near killing myself. And eventually, um, well, my baby was still, she was only about nine months old. And I I ended, I married, I was uh, doing a training to be a photographer in uh, Dayton, Ohio for a studio. And I was working as a waitress at night. And I ended up marrying a, a, a illust- uh, he was an artist. He illustrated for the Yellow Pages and whatnot. He was, oh, twice, three times my age, probably. So I married Jim. And we moved into a townhouse with a small baby, but I was working two jobs and literally came home one day or night because I would work a night shift, and then I would work this day shift, and I blocked out it and realized I was standing at a screen. I can remember it very vividly, and I blocked out because it was just too much work. I didn't know it at the time. I have MS, and I brought that on. So that was that experience, but it wasn't until many, many, many years later that I realized that I had MS. So you quit work and became a full-time mom? No, no, nothing like that. When I was in Fort Lauderdale, I had been drinking, drugging pretty heavily. And I'm an addict. I'm a full-blown alcoholic addict. Now, I'm not active, and I haven't been active for 34 years. But I got started as an alcoholic addict, and of course, it's, it's in my genes. And there's a lot of proof that it's a genetic hand down. And my father died of it. The Native American situation is kind of well-known. But I have had that gene, and it got activated when I was partying and drinking on the beach. Now, the drugs and the the drinking 
and the drugging was not that bad again compared to what it's like today. There was no incidences of mess or any of that. We didn't even have that around. And the hardcore drinkers and druggers were never, never on the beach. So it was mostly pot and, and booze and beer and, you know, typical, sometimes a hard drink. But it was mostly just that kind of thing. But however, it did get me hooked. And I struggled uh, up until I was in my late 30s with uh, struggling with addiction. So my child was raised by a periodic alcoholic. Of course, I didn't know I was that at the time, but I would go off the booze long enough to work, and uh, and I married, you know, I married Jim, and then he died about a year after we were married. He had diabetes, and then I uh, I was on my own again, and then I married a guy by the name of Rick, who, and that. Uh, he was in the Air Force, and, and then he was an, a drinker, and as it turns out, he died from alcoholism, so he was my fellow alcoholic. So my life from 16 to 34-ish or something like that ended up being um, uh, rift with enormous amount of problems mm. with addiction. But when you're young and you've got a child and you've, got, you've just got to get up and function, so I was a functioning alcoholic drug addict for a long, long, long time. But finally it did hit me and, it, and I did bottom out in a very hard way. But uh, that was the way it was. But, you know, just about every young couple that Rick and I were exposed to, and he was he worked for Federal Aviation Administration at that time. And uh, he was in the Air Force. And he was learning to be a techie in the, uh, for Federal Aviation. He got a job. And we moved from uh, from Ohio, or, you know, from Ohio to California. California was a marvelous experience, but we functioned quite well, actually, because most a lot of addicts do in the early beginning of their addiction. And then eventually things get better, worse and worse and worse. And of course, you start bottoming out and losing jobs and losing health and you know all kinds of stuff. So, but that was the story of my life. And then at 34, something happened. Yeah, it sure did. I, um, Rick and I were drinking pretty heavily at the time. We were in Van Nuys, California. We were um, uh, just a family trying to survive. Uh, we did pretty well. He made pretty good money being a flyboy for aviation. I worked periodically, and I was full-blown drug addict alcoholic at that time. And uh, the drugs and the alcohol got worse and worse and worse. I needed a fix, and, a, and you know, it, it progressed, and it will. That's the point. This disease progresses. I uh, bottomed out with a gun to my head, pulled the trigger. That's how I bottomed out oh from this God. disease, because that's the way chronic alcoholics bottom out. Eventually, it will kill you. And, you know, we had a long, pretty long-term marriage, and we loved each other incredibly. It's not like there wasn't any love. or, And, you know, we had a home, and we had two cars, and, you know, not everybody bottoms out in a ditch or behind a trash can, although I had my moments. But uh, I was stark raving insane because, you know, social drinkers don't put a gun to their head and pull the trigger after they've had a drink, if you've noticed. So the disease finally got to me, but gun did not go off because I was too stoned and too loaded to, 
to load the gun correctly. So that was, and it was not a miracle. It was just I was too stoned, too loaded to load the clip correctly and get it up into the handle. But the miracle started, the spiritual experience or the miracle happened when I came out of a blackout and realized that I had not shot my head off. That's what my husband and my daughter would have walked in on had I have finished that job. So that's how insane I was at that time. Mm. And I was just in my late 30s. So that is the nature of this phenomena of addiction. So you scared yourself enough to really do something about it? No, you know, I w- it isn't that, you know, what's interesting, uh, because people that don't know, and this is really what needs to be understood about addicts, the image that comes to my mind is Nancy Reagan just sitting there saying, just say no, you know? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. That's not how addicts think. That's why it doesn't work that way. You can't just say no. You have to have a fix. It's just the way it is. My spiritual experience was looking, coming up out of a blackout after drinking. I had shot glass, shot glass after I drank wild turkey whiskey straight, and I had drugs and uh, after I blacked out, having I literally put the gun in my head and pulled the trigger, that I remember very well, with intention. And then I woke up and or came out of a blackout, and I looked at that gun, and I looked up at a telephone. Uh, this was at my table in uh, in sort of a living room that was looking on to the kitchen in Van Nuys. Um, you know, the emergency numbers and those big glaring orange stickers that people, if you're in trouble, call 800-da-da-hotline, you know. And my daughter, and, and this is this is how God works. It's it's the most amazing thing. There was an Al-Anon next door, a lady in Al-Anon. And Al-Anons are normies that live with alcoholics and addicts, and, and they learn to just put up with us, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know how they do that, but they do that, and there's a whole program called Al-Anon, and if anybody's living with an alcoholic guy, I highly recommend you go to Al-Anon, but the 800 number was, if you're in trouble with drinking or drugs, come or call this number, and it was an 800 number, and it was the uh, Van Nuys AA hotline. The spiritual experience started when I did not pick that gun back up and load it correctly, and put it to my head and pull the trigger. That was my thought. I can't even kill myself. I mean, I was in a a despair that only people like me who have bottomed out like that know. It's a despair you can't, there's no way you can explain that. You cannot explain it to anybody because it's very difficult for anybody to understand unless you've been there with that kind of deep despair. It was the end of hope. I was absolutely hopeless. I was that's what bottoming out is. There is no hope. And once you lose your hope, you're you're done. You you can't live without hope. Uh and I was in a rage. I was very angry. My entire childhood caught up with me. And that's what drove me to that table with the booze and the drugs and the gun. Because I had had, uh, uh, it's just too doggone much, too too many bad memories, too much hard life, uninterrupted hardship for the rest of my life. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. Even though I was married, 
had a great home, had a child that was going to college. Things were really going quite well when I bottomed out, and yet those memories haunted me. I just snapped. So the spiritual experience was looking at the gun and entertaining, literally, for a split second. You know, in essence, God damn it, I'm just going to finish this thing. I've had it. I don't want to live here anymore. I can't live in this body with these memories anymore. Or And with the rage and the anger. It was mostly rage and anger. It was so raged at. I hated everything. I hated God. I hated God. I hated everything. I hate, didn't hate my child. I didn't hate my husband. But I hated me. And I really was in a rage towards God. I absolutely hated the dude. I mean, I, I would talk to God and, and give him the finger and the whole bit. I believed in a God, but I hated him. Absolutely hated him. Because I, I had a question, where the heck was God when I was being thrown down a flight of stairs at five years old, ending up in a pool of my own blood? Where was this God? But when I woke up out of that blackout and I saw that gun, all I really literally had to do was reach over, j- jam the uh, the clip up into the handle and pull the trigger and I was gone. So there wasn't any thinking, oh my, what have I done? It, it It just doesn't happen that way. That's why it's so dangerous when you get to that point. But I did look up and I saw this big, bright orange thing glaring 800 number under the uh, phone. And I got up and I went over and I called that uh, number. Now, why did you do that instead of shooting yourself? You know, who knows? Mm. To me, that was my first spiritual experience ever Mm. because I was drawn to that orange, Uh, bright orange. I was drawn to the light, you know, drawn to that bright orange, you know, kind of demanding me. Because, I mean, it's not like I woke up and... Out of this blackout and went, oh my, what have I done? Why didn't I just say no? (laughs) It's not like that at all. I was still in a rage, you know, for a long, you know, I was in a rage for heaven's sakes. I was, I was so in a rage, I was going to kill myself. So I didn't wake up out of a blackout going, gee, I think I'll go over and call the 800 number now. It just doesn't work that way. But I was incredibly attracted to that big orange. It was, it was like it was taunting me. It was like, yeah, 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 you won't call us, you know. Mm. And it was kind of out of a piss-off that I went over there, and I saw the 800 number, and I went, ah, why not? Might as well try it. Mm. You know, I was very snarky. It was. It wasn't, uh, gee, I'm all bottomed out here. I think I'll get help. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why when you work, I used to work suicide hotlines, and that's what, if you don't know that about somebody that's about to kill themselves, then you're going to kill them. And then uh, when I called the 800 number, it was the Van Nuys AA, and they are notorious for, and within 10 minutes, there were two beautiful blonde women, California women, in beautiful dresses, and they came to the porch, to my porch, and they took me, they said, come on, let's go to a meeting, and they took me to a Lano club, which was basically kind of around the corner from where I lived, near the bar I used to drink in which was kind of amazing. And I walked into this meeting, and uh, that was my first exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, However, when I walked into this meeting, 
well, I kind of they kind of drug me into this meeting because I was scared out of my mind, and it just things just happened as soon as I made that call. Things, the God that I hated, and of course I don't hate God anymore. I don't understand God, but I call it the Great Mystery Power today, and the Great Mystery Power just went. Yeah, now I, I'm going to take over here, and we're just going to float her a little bit further away from that gun, I guess. So they took me to an Olano club, and those days the twelve steps were tacked on the walls in uh, five by or eight by ten frames, and the twelve steps are based on uh, a spirit, you know, find, having a spiritual experience and dealing with God. It's not a religious organization, but it's definitely a spiritual organization. And that's also something people don't understand. Is, is, uh, it's not a religion. It's not a cult. It saves millions of lives. And it saved my life. But God was in big gold letters. Well, you can just imagine me sitting there, hating God, looking up at these big gold letters. Every time there was a mention of God, it was uh, in big gold letters. So I thought to myself, Oh, my God, what have I done? This is a cult, or this is a church. Yet another one of those, and I'm I'm really keeping my language clean here. This is (laughs) another one of those frecking churches. Screw this, I'm out of here. You know? And uh, I realized that I would have gone home and, and shot my brains out. But here's what happened. That meeting was started by a guy, he was about, had 45 years or so of sobriety, and he sat in the corner like a lot of old-timers do, which is kind of what I do these days, rocking back and forth, and and he were, he was watching me. And, wh- and when newcomers come into the meetings, we watch them uh, to see, you know, we know they're hurting. And so we, we watch them to see what we can do to serve, what we can do to help. He watched me, and he said, uh, he said, Susie, you're going to sponsor her. They had a, they assigned sponsors in that meeting. And Susie was assigned to me, and she that was her service to me, and she shadowed me, which is why I named the book Negotiating Shadows. She shadowed me for, oh my goodness, at least a couple of months until I was sort of over the suicide hump. And we went to a meeting every day, and she became my first sponsor. She was actually an actress in uh, Los Angeles, Hollywood. Yeah, her husband was a director, and she was a member of AA, of course, and she had about five years. And she uh, drove me home, and she stayed in my home with me, and she called me every day, and we went to a meeting every day, and we went out and had coffee and talked, and she, well, shadowed me, and uh, she made sure that I had another choice, I guess you could say. And it saved my life, literally saved my life. So I owe my life to Alcoholics Anonymous, I really do, and eventually Narcotics Anonymous, which I helped start in Van Nuys, by the way. Uh, Addicts and alcoholics are totally different people. So they needed a book of their own called Narcotics Anonymous. And I was part of shaping the wording and shaping the the, uh, concepts of that book eventually. So I started going to NA meetings when I got about a year's sobriety and uh, alcoholics anonymous. So I went to both meetings. I don't do that so much anymore. I stick, I go to AA still, and I sponsor people. I'm there, Susie. So at what point did you run into the Baha'i faith? 
I had two years of sobriety. I had decided I would explore my native background. And uh, I had an opportunity to be a hostess for uh, a guy by the name of Don Perot, who was Potawatomi Wittobago medicine man. There was a group of natives coming through uh, Los Angeles to educate us white people, <laughs> us, us non-natives, although I'm known as a Métis, meaning mixed blood person. But Don Perot came in, I was his, uh, he stayed in my home for a while, and then Grace Spotted Eagle, who eventually adopted me as her official grandmother, and she taught me all sorts of native ways, and, and her husband, Grace uh, Wallace Black Elk, who is the, uh, in lineage with the, uh, the famous Black Elk of, of older time, and, uh, and Jaime Storm, who is German Cheyenne, and he, was just writing a book called The Song of Hyoka and Seven Arrows. He and his son, Rocky, would come to my house on a regular basis, and I was seeing his book as it was becoming formed. And, and he told me a lot about what it's like to be part Native and part white. And that's not an easy road either, by the way, because the Natives, even to this day, they don't like white people touching their sacred things. We did it to them when we came over here. Still to this day, there's an awful lot of issue around that. But I knew that I had a right to explore my native side. And I started having visions. Now, I was two years sober, and drugs do have an incredible impact on you, but not two years in. And I thought, oh, my God, am I, I'm hallucinating. What in the heck? And I went to a doctor, and he said, no, there's nothing wrong with you. are fine, and it's stress, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yet I kept having visions and strong spiritual experiences, I really call them. We built a sweat lodge in uh, our yard. We had about an acre of land in Van Nuys at the time. The natives came and we built a sweat lodge and, and we had a lot of native ceremonies in our back area, back of the house. That was incredibly powerful days when that happened. And I got exposed to my native culture my native background, and gave myself and was given permission to activate my native side. At that time, Renee Passerol, who is a very famous Baha'i, she had a near-death experience. She lived in uh, Encino, and I lived in Van Nuys, so she came down. She's full-blooded uh, Salagi. She came down and would be in the sweat lodges. She would uh, do Baha'i prayers. And, of course, I didn't know what Baha'i prayer, but there were Sikhs in there with us, and there were Jewish people, and there were all kinds of people. So people would oftentimes do their own prayers in these sweat lodges. And so I didn't really pay that much attention. I was also teaching metaphysics at that time. I was studying to be a kinesiologist, and I was doing all sorts of energy work, uh, what it used to be called energy work at that time. I don't know if it's still called that or not. But I was very deeply into metaphysics, obviously, and all sorts of things. And I got a chance to go to Europe and teach in England, in Glastonbury, England. I uh, went to Germany, France, and England in a little, uh, pretty much in the 82, 83, 84, somewhere in that area. And I heard about Baha'i there, too, when I was in Glastonbury. And I thought, what is this Baha'i thing? This is the second. I heard it on one continent, then I heard it on another continent, and of course that piqued curiosity. And when I got back to California, I um, 
she, you know, they were telling me what it was, but I went, oh, that's nice. That's lovely. That's, I'm so glad for you. <laughs> but, you know, I had a God I was doing business with. I was, I was good. I had a higher power. I don't need, I did, you know, and I, you know, you still have memories when, you know, I didn't want anything to do with the Christian religion or any of that. I didn't want anything to do with any religion. And the one thing in AA is it's very open-ended. It's called the God of your understanding. And that can be a doorknob. It can be anything. And I decided that this, I had a higher power. That's what I called it for many years. And then that morphed into uh, something else, and that and that morphed into something else. You know, about two to five years, you start you know, within the program. I've noticed people tend to seek a deeper understanding of God. So, after I got back from uh, from Europe, I had a uh, I had a vision, and it was a very profound vision. I was sleeping, and I woke. And of course, this sounds. I mean, this sounds like okay. You went insane when you were two years sober. <laughs> or you were drinking and drugging again. You know, this is a hard sell, but right. this is the way it I mean, is. I'm telling but, the truth. But this is your experience, and so... Yeah, it's my experience. It's exactly. what happened to me. And I didn't want anything to do with Baha'i. You know, I thought, oh, what lovely, wonderful people. They believe in world peace, and they're wonderful people, and, and Baha'is are wonderful people. People with all sorts of problems like everybody else, but the faith itself is, is just fascinating. And I did get fascinated with the concept of, of what it was about, but... I had a God. Thank you very much. I'm doing fine. I went to bed one night and got up. Uh, I didn't get up. I had a, um, a waking dream, it's often called. My eyes came open and there was this white turbaned being with no face, this big, huge white turban, which was very unusual because the only people I saw with white turbans were seats with this long white robe and this long bony finger touching my heart. And it was a ghost, if you will, very ghost-like, and it was floating above me. scared the bejesus out of me. So I called Renee, and I said, Renee, you're not going to believe what happened. Because, you know, she and I would have incidences like this, and we would talk about it. Because you can't go around talking to people about you just saw something floating in the doorway. You know, you, you just can't do that. People will freak out, and they don't want to come near you. They think you're crazy. But it is part of the Native experience. She was laughing. She said, come on up here. I have a picture I want to show you. So so I went up, and she showed me a picture of Abdu'l-Bahá, and she said, I think he wants you to become a Baha'i. <laughs> so Abdu'l-Bahá, for those folks who don't know, is the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. And many, many Baha'is have pictures of Abdu'l-Bahá, yeah. Exactly. And I, and I went, yeah, that was him. That was the turban. And I said, oh, my gosh, I guess I'm going to have to be a Baha'i. <laughs> 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 and that's literally how I became a Baha'i. And then that was it. You know, I was, mm-hmm. I was in it, and, uh, you know, it was around 82, I guess. Mm-hmm. I became Baha'i in 82. So I had all those incredible experiences around that time. It was very intense, really. And then it was, uh, when I became Baha'i, it was a lovely time to be a Baha'i in uh, Los Angeles. We'd go out in the park, and people would be attracted to us because we'd be singing and picnicking in and sharing our food with people and, and you know, just being open, lovely uh, Baha'is. Baha'is are very open and loving and very non-fanatical in many ways. Well, well, there are some fanatical Baha'is. 
because you're as good as what you are when you first came in. But I, I absolutely was exposed to the Baha'i faith in the right place, for sure. And it was very joyful, and the people were very peaceful. And they had, I think what I really was impressed with the Baha'is, especially at that time, was there was this intense mission and this incredible story of progressive revelation. And that's really what got me, because I'm actually a really logical, practical person, and that comes from my Dutch mother's side. And I, I just thought, this is a huge world peace movement that has a chance. And I like the fact that it explained why all the religions were on the planet with their symbols. That helped me understand the different religions and why, in fact, they were in conflict with one another. And it helped me, though, understand my place in it. And of course, uh, I started to forgive, you know, because of the AA step work, I had to start doing a lot of forgiveness work and clean-up work on my part, and you know, blah, blah, blah. It was a great time. By the time I was five years sober, I was three years into the Baha'i world, and, and understanding more and more and more what this Baha'i thing was, it's a very unusual religion, because number, and I really loved it because it has no preachers, clergy, ministers. Baha'i was, was very easy, smooth, practical. Everything is so celebratory. Let's talk about your book, Negotiating Shadows. What inspired you to write this book? I have a daughter who is actually turning 50 in April. I'm 70. I started out just writing out my story because when you're 70 and you're getting closer to the grave, you really want your kid to know more about you on levels that she, did, she didn't know much about because after all, she wasn't there when I was 16. Mm-hmm. And when I was going through a lot of my situations, she wasn't there when I was five years old and whatnot. And she was hearing stories from some of my relatives, and they were very distorted about my mom and about all sorts of things. And I said, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to straighten this out. No, I'm not going to have her thinking these things because so, they, they just weren't true. So I sat down I started writing my story, starting from her great-grandparents, the way I remember my mom and dad, after all, my people came out of the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties. That's when they were young, and they came out of you know World War One, World War Two. Our people came out of all of that, and the Great Depression, and all. So we came all right through that. That's when I was born. I was born into that time in the 40s. I started writing just for her sake, and then the book started taking a different shape. And the title came immediately, uh, Negotiating Shadows. Now, I've since, in 2008, I graduated with a master's degree in conflict resolution. As a mediator, I'm, I tend to think in terms of mediation, negotiation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Negotiating Shadows was an easy title because I was thinking about all the shadows that had followed me throughout my life and then Susie shadowing me to save my life and, you know, all of that. Shadows have a very significant meaning to me. There are implications of of a world that needs to be understood, obviously. And then negotiating is what I do when I work. And so that title came, and then I started writing the history 
I got fascinated. Well, what, what was my mom and dad when they were young and struggling and trying to make a living and, you know, they had us three kids and all the struggles and everything. And then I was thinking about their parents, my grandparents, who actually I had not met. I only met my grandmother on my dad's side. All the other grandparents had died before, you know, before then. So I started talking thinking about, well, what did my grandmother experience when she was a kid? So I started looking up history. And then the history of the time got started getting laid down, which gave perspective to the people in that history. So the book actually started morphing into something. It does follow this addict as she is going through uh, her life from her birth to present time. 2012, I think, is when this was published. And The Addict is Me. But it really isn't a memoir. It's actually a story of um, humanity in its historical time with all of its struggles and its shadows. It's written in a very poetic way. Uh, the chapters are incredibly short, very readable, but it's very dense. And it, it just gives you a peek at what it was like for all of us <clears throat> as humans from the 1900s on through 2011 or 12 when this book got published. Right. But, and it got published in Oxford, England by George Ronald Publishing. And then eventually it made it back to uh, Baha'i Distribution Service. It's a journey of a child who had an enormously hard background, who came from parents and grandparents who had it enormously hard, that any of us came through alive is, an, is a miracle unto itself. And then it follows this girl as she goes into her womanhood with all her difficulties and some of the stories I've said. And it just shows the difficulty, and then it shows the miracle of recovery and transformation and transition and restoration. It gives hope to any alcoholic addict. I And I, and you know, I sort of, I just put this chapter in about the Baha'i faith, and I said, the Baha'i faith promises me a renewal of all life on planet Earth like no other renewal known to mankind so far. It tells me that I am one with all other people, that I am part of a progressive revelation. Check it out for yourself. I see it as a way to heal the human race on many levels. And I never thought I would promote this kind of message. I hate preaching, but I look around and see we as a people are falling apart. I see Mother Earth violated at every level. Where else are we to go? I open my alcoholic mind and embrace the God of my understanding, and while I am not the best Baha'i I can be, I do my best to follow the dictates of my conscience. Grace, before we close, do you have a favorite passage or excerpt from the book you'd like to read? You know, I dedicated this book, of course, to my mom and dad. I called it This Mom and This Dad, and it's a rather long passage, so I won't necessarily quote that, but I will say... There was a song that I heard when I was in Europe, and it's every day I wake up, every day I try. Every day I wake up, every day I cry. I'm a shadow for the sun, I'm a shadow for the sun. And that was in the introduction. And then I started with poverty. Children of poverty suffer the most. 
poverty is still with us. Why? We follow, and this is just the introduction, we follow the author's life from a young girl into her womanhood through her dark journey as she negotiates her extreme life conflicts on the way to her spiritual awakening. That was so inspired when I started the the book. I really appreciate this interview, too. Well, Grace, that's what I wanted to say. I want to, I, I want to thank you for sharing your story and, and your book with us. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Grace Reed, mediator and author of the book Negotiating Shadows. Her website is negotiatingshadows.com. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Yeah.
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.